Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 52, March 14th to March 20th, 1862. We spent last week in Arkansas fighting the two-day battle at Pea Ridge, which will prove a tough defeat for the Confederates in the Trans-Mississippi. And actually, speaking of that, I just want to very quickly here in the beginning talk about our Patreon episode that should be posted by the time this episode comes out, and that is a companion to the Battle of Pea Ridge. I have some photos that I personally took, so there is a recorded slideshow that goes with the battle uh, that you can see some of the modern-day images that match up with some of the places that we talked about in the episode. So I think it's pretty well done. I, you know, I think as far as a PowerPoint slideshow recorded can go. Uh, so hopefully you all enjoy that. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to do some more of those in the future, especially for, say, a battle like Pea Ridge, where you're probably not making that a destination to go see. You know, maybe you will, but um, definitely going to try to throw some more of these in here. So if that sounds like something that interests you, make sure to check out the Patreon feed once again. That link is in the description for the episode. Now, if you're looking at your trusty Civil War calendar, you will notice that we skipped over a pretty major event. I did mention very briefly at the end of last week, we'll have to tie off loose ends in Virginia here in this episode. We will begin there before heading to North Carolina, and I am referring, of course, to the famous Battle of Hampton Roads that is the duel between the Monitor and the Merrimack. Now, by this time, the CSS Virginia, or the Merrimack, was ready to go. We have already mentioned in our story here how the Monitor was launched from New York. Now, the CSS Virginia was impressive and probably worth the hype that had the Northern Papers reeling. The CSS Virginia was 262 feet long and contained two layers of iron plating. If you look at the Merrimack, it's like there is a house on top of a platform. That's probably the best way that I can describe it. Uh, But of course, I will try to include a picture on the website for a better visual. The plates on the roof were at a 36-degree angle, which made any incoming fire deflect off. As far as arms, on the broadside, the Merrimack contained six 9-inch Dahlgrens and two Brook rifles. Each end of the vessel had an additional Brook rifle as a bow and stern weapon. Now, Brook rifles were designed by James Mercer Brook and were produced either in Richmond at the famous Tredegar Ironworks or in Selma, Alabama. Despite the impressive weapons and armor, the ship was not without flaws. The engines were defective, being of an older variety, and the ram was poorly mounted. 
commanding the Virginia was our already mentioned Frank Buchanan, the only full admiral during the war for the Confederacy. Also on board was Lieutenant Catesby Roger Jones. Jones was a native of Virginia, serving as a midshipman in 1836. He was already involved with the ordnance of the USS Merrimack before the war and involved with the rebirth as the CSS Virginia. So in many ways, he was the right guy to have in his position as the right-hand man to Franklin Buchanan. On March 8th, Buchanan would take his new command out from Norfolk, which is currently a facility for the U.S. Navy and site of Gosport Navy Yard, which you remember was captured by the Southerners early in the war. This, of course, is where the Merrimack came from. Despite the readiness to take the vessel out on the water, the sailors were not necessarily expecting to be engaged that morning. They were not informed until they were underway that they would be seeing the elephant, as they say. Across to Hampton Roads sat the USS Congress and USS Cumberland, two wooden Navy frigates supported by tugs. Both of these ships were under the overall command of Lewis Goldsboro, who you remember was the naval officer in charge of the combined efforts with Burnside in North Carolina. Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells would actually be very critical of Goldsboro because he decides he's going to go to North Carolina to oversee those operations personally and in a way, this seems like he's trying to duck the CSS Virginia, who, of course, is sort of the big threat that the Confederate Navy has. And to be fair to Gideon Wells, it is a little fishy that he would move away from the area where there is a legitimate naval threat and a definite one. In fact, you know, the United States... Navy, they know of the CSS Virginia, so they know this is going to be a problem. Whereas, we already saw how the Mosquito Fleet in North Carolina certainly was not a threat. Another nice connection is that the Congress and the Cumberland were anchored right off the shore near Camp Butler. If you recall, this camp was established all the way back before the Battle of Big Bethel in 1861. There was also a land battery under control of the infantry. Directly, they would be led by Joseph Mansfield, but these were part of the Fortress Monroe defenses under the already mentioned wool. Mansfield was a native of New Haven, Connecticut. He had served as a chief engineer under Zachary Taylor during the Mexican-American War. After the war, he was appointed a colonel in the office of the Inspector General at the recommendation of Jefferson Davis. Mansfield will be with us until the Battle of Antietam later this year. As the Virginia steamed out to meet the Union forces, Buchanan would address his men very simply that the Confederacy expected them to do their duty and then 
beat to quarters. Union sailors would see the billowing smoke from the Merrimack approach ominously. There was an agreement between the sides that civilians would be shuttled between Norfolk and Hampton Roads. During these exchanges, the sailors would gossip between each other and trade newspapers amongst other items. Because of this, they had a good understanding of the progress of the ironclads on both sides. A sailor was quoted to having said, I believe that thing is coming down at last. Despite this, the Navy frigates were in a state of lax. Laundry was hung up, the weather was calm. They were not prepared for the carnage that was about to be unleashed. Buchanan decided that the Cumberland was going to be the first target. The reason for this was that the Cumberland had a 70-pound rifle as part of its arsenal. This was seen as capable of doing damage to the ironclad, so elimination of this threat would be vital in the destruction of the Union blockading fleet. The Virginia, along with two gunboats, would approach and open fire. The USS Zwab would be the first Union ship to return fire on the ironclad, but they would find out the hard way that the fire was not going to do much in terms of damage. In an effort to hobble the Congress, the Confederate ironclad would unleash a broadside into the frigate as she passed. Although it was just with four guns, the shots would do considerable damage. Hot shot was employed on the CSS Virginia, so the hits on the Congress would start a fire on board the wooden vessel. You remember we actually briefly mentioned hot shot and how that was imported during the bombarding of Fort Sumter uh, way back in 1861. Any return fire would glance off the armored plates of the Virginia. The 36-degree angle was doing its job. I have seen that there was damage done to the ears of the rebels inside the ironclad due to the concussion of giving fire as well as receiving. Men would have to stand away from the walls or risk deafening blows. This was really modern versus old technology. An officer on the Virginia had actually served on the Cumberland. The slaughter was fearful. Another quote was given from the Cumberland to the same effect. The carnage was frightful. The deck looked like a slaughterhouse. With the USS Congress dealing with the shock of the initial strike unleashed by the iron-plated behemoth, the Cumberland was next in the line of fire. Wanting to waste no time trading shots, especially with the dangerous 70-pound rifle aboard, Buchanan would order the ramming of the Cumberland. Simultaneously, while attempting to ram the frigate, the bow gun would open fire. A seven-foot hole would be created as a result of the impact, which would start bringing on water to the Cumberland. The writing was on the wall. She would sink. Ironically, the 70-pounder was not fired during the engagement, 
being disabled early on in the fight. Despite sinking, firing would continue. During this part of the battle, the smokestack of the Virginia would be riddled with shot, making necessary for repairs afterwards. Gunners on the Cumberland would be smart with their aim, targeting the gun ports of the ironclad. If they were able to get a shot into the open ports, they would be able to inflict internal damage. Obviously, because the external damage was not having any kind of effect. It was actually at this point most likely that the most damage was done to the Merrimack, considering the Cumberland was able to lay into her at point-blank range. Remember, too, that the ram of the Merrimack was faulty, so it needed to be cut free, actually getting stuck in the Cumberland. There was actually a legitimate fear that the ironclad would be dragged under with her prey. The older engines really needed to be kicked into gear. Once again, a major fault in the CSS Virginia. At this point, the grease on the outside of the ironclad had caught fire. But why, you may ask, was there grease on the outside of the Confederate ship? The application was used to provide an extra slip toward potential incoming enemy fire. There would be calls for the surrender of the Cumberland, but they were not heeded. Once free, the cannon was able to turn back toward the USS Congress to finish off that ship. The CSS Virginia had a deep draft and needed a lot of room to turn around, so it took some time to accomplish this maneuver. At this point, the tug USS Zouave takes damage. Fire from the Virginia took the head off the captain of the Congress. Along with the ironclad monster, riverboats Patrick Henry and Jamestown would also get into the act. After receiving more punishing fire, the USS Congress would surrender. Gunboats from the James River Fleet, as well as the escort to the Virginia as she steamed into combat, would join in on taking out the wounded beast. Shore batteries would fire at the gunboats. Buchanan is actually wounded by fire from Mansfield, angered at the fact that the infantry had fired while there was a flag of truce. Famously, Mansfield would state that despite the surrender of the Congress, the Union infantry had not surrendered. Interestingly, Wool was concerned with a joint assault with infantry, so the majority of his forces were on the alert for a rebel assault, which did not come. Remember that John Bankhead Magruder, who we talked about actually during that episode about Big Bethel, he still has some troops on a defensive line on the peninsula there, so Wool is sort of concerned that there would be a joint action, and that actually might have been smart by the Confederates to have pulled that off, but obviously it was sort of unplanned, really, this move by Buchanan to start the career of the Virginia, so that did not happen. Free to turn their attention to the naval action, the land forces would get involved. 
accurate shorefire would clear a deck of the Confederate vessel. The Confederate sailors did not realize where the fire was coming from. In fact, it was originally thought that they were coming from the surrendered USS Congress, which was not acceptable in the etiquette of naval warfare at the time. Buchanan would grab a small arm on board and in a fiery scene rush to the deck and return fire on the Yankees. The Confederate commander would be hit in the thigh, the shot glancing but not severing his femoral artery. Lieutenant Jones would take command for the remainder of the day. Three more U.S. ships, Roanoke, St. Lawrence, and Minnesota, would come to the aid of their comrades, but run aground shortly before dark. Roanoke and St. Lawrence would be able to free themselves, but the USS Minnesota would still be stuck. The captain of the Minnesota, who only days before was spoiling for a fight, with the new ironclad of the Confederacy, came to the realization that he would have to destroy his own ship rather than let it fall into the hands of the enemy. Smoke rose from the Congress, still burning as night fell. Cumberland had sank, her mast the only thing sticking above the water. She had lost 121 men in the action on the 8th. 136 casualties were inflicted from the Congress. CSS Virginia only lost two men killed and eight wounded. Lieutenant Jones and his sailors would earn a well-deserved rest at Norfolk, some of the crew watching the flames of the Congress well into the night. The following day, Lieutenant Jones would want to go back and finish the job. Minnesota had not freed herself yet. After a hearty breakfast, the Virginia would lumber out to potentially wreak more destruction. But while she came closer to the trapped vessel, there pulled out a strange sight. It was described as a floating cheese box. Some of the crew of the Virginia thought it was spare parts or supplies being ferried from the Minnesota, but it was neither of those things. Of course, it was the USS Monitor. She had arrived just in time to disrupt the Virginia's activity. Actually, Gideon Wells had sent an order to have the Monitor withdraw back toward Washington in an effort to protect the capital and other major cities of the North. Already, there were plans in place to block the major rivers. Fortunately, the Secretary of the Navy changed his mind, setting up the showdown both navies were waiting for. Gustavus Fox was already on the Minnesota. As far as stats, the monitor was 173 feet in length and weighed 776 tons with a speed of 7 knots. Included on the vessel were 40 separate patents, including the steam-powered turret. She was commanded by James L. Warden, who had been captured and exchanged earlier in the conflict. The monitor had been towed in choppy water on the way to Hampton Roads. When she finally got there, the captain of the Minnesota looked down on the monitor 
and was dismayed that this was the vessel who had come to save them. She only had two guns and was very small in comparison to his attacker. Warden asked his crew if they would continue. Anyone who did not wish to go up against their foe could stay on the USS Roanoke in safety. Seemingly so great were the odds against them. Not one man took him up on the offer. They all volunteered to go. 8.45 a.m. would begin the exchange of fire. Due to the damage that the CSS Virginia had suffered the day before, the speed of the ship was cut by half. The monitor was concerned if the turret took a direct hit, it might be a problem. The first shots from the Virginia put a dent in the side of the turret, but little damage. Six to seven minutes was the rate of fire for the monitor, who used her superior speed to the advantage in the fight. Most of the combat would actually be at a range of about 100 to 200 yards. The shock of the fire from the guns in both ships was listed as being damaging to the ears, as already mentioned. The pilot house was directly in front of the turret, which was a potential problem given the rotating turret and being unsure of the direction. A big advantage was that the guns would be hidden while reloading, with shutters coming down and covering their portholes. A big problem, though, would be that the communication between the pilot house and the turret and the monitor would not work during the fight. Merrimack had sharpshooters stationed with small arms trying to pick off men on the monitor. Jones wanted to make for the Minnesota all the while. The Merrimack actually ran aground, making for the still-stranded ship, which made it a sitting target for the much faster monitor. After a while, Merrimack was able to break free, both ships attempting to ram one another. As the monitor attempted her maneuver, she missed, bringing the pilot house closer to the Virginia, who fired directly on it at a space of about 20 yards. This shot would actually blind Warden, who would be the only casualty on the monitor. Licking her wounds, the USS monitor would remove herself to the shallows to assess the damage. Remember that the CSS Virginia has a deeper draft and could not follow. Jones and the Merrimack thought she was withdrawing. So too did the Minnesota, who prepared to scuttle the vessel. In the nick of time, the USS monitor would re-engage and stay around the Minnesota. Thwarted in the attempt to reach the Minnesota and finish the job, Jones would have to withdraw his vessel in order to assess the damage from the drawn-out fight with the USS Monitor. As the action came to a close, Warden simply asked while he was being tended to, Have I saved that ship? Both sides claimed victory. Monitor, a tactical victory. Warden had in fact saved the Minnesota. The Virginia would make things sticky for the U.S. Navy, though. Obviously, they would need to be wary of the powerful weapon. This was the first battle between steam-driven vessels, and the first battle between ironclads, famously. 
it proved to both sides that heavier guns would be needed as armor-piercing rounds. Ironically, both commanders would be replaced after Hampton Roads. Warden, of course, is replaced for his wounds, and Jones is replaced for a more experienced officer. All in all, the U.S. would produce 64 Monitor-class vessels by the end of the war. Just as a brief note, as we have alluded to, George B. McClellan was having to alter his plans because of the CSS Virginia. The Army of the Potomac would be moving on the 17th toward Fortress Monroe to begin the Peninsula Campaign. With the Virginia held in check, this was made possible. Finally, McClellan would be able to begin his campaign. In March of 1862, it would once again be on to Richmond. We will, of course, cover that in depth here in the episodes to come as we get into the summer especially, and we'll fight those battles outside of Richmond. To close out today, let's check in with Ambrose Burnside. Remember, Burnside had recently captured Roanoke Island and fought the Battle of Elizabeth City. The Coastal Army would be prepared to move deeper now that it had eliminated the Confederate naval threat and the garrison on Roanoke Island. With Elizabeth City burned by the retreating rebels, it was now time to move on. New Bern was the next target, followed by Fort Macon on the coast. Confederates had decided that Norfolk and the key naval facilities were more important and would put more emphasis on the defense of that area. Confederate Commander Richard Gatlin in Wilmington realizes New Bern is going to be the next target. Gatlin had attended West Point in 1832 before serving in the Mexican-American War. He was charged with the coastal defense, but would resign his commission, staying on in various capacities in the Confederate Army for the remainder of the conflict. At this point, New Bern is the second largest city in North Carolina. Now, if you were to look at a list of the largest cities in North Carolina, uh, a modern list, of course, that might seem pretty hard to believe because it's not even in the top 10. But obviously, during the Civil War, this would have been an important location. To defend the city, Lawrence O'Brien Branch had constructed earthworks outside of New Bern. Branch had actually been tutored by none other than Salmon P. Chase before the war. The native of North Carolina would serve in Congress before commanding North Carolina troops during the war. He will go on to serve in what will become the Army of Northern Virginia all the way until the Antietam Campaign. Branch's line includes Fort Dixie, a four-gun battery, as well as further defensive position anchored by Fort Thompson. March 13th would see the arrival of Union troops at Slocum's Creek. Branch has around 4,000 men, which he deploys throughout his defensive works. Right through the middle of his position was a key railroad 
along with the old Beaufort Road. He had seven regiments of North Carolina men, as well as a special militia unit. Burnside's army would be the same brigades, numbering in total 11,000 men. Foster, Reno, and Park would be the subordinate commanders. Foster and his brigade of primarily Massachusetts men would begin the assault toward the Confederate works. Jesse Reno would attempt to flank the line of the Confederates through marshy ground to the right flank. Park and his brigade would be held in reserve. As Foster attacks, he would begin receiving supporting fire from the gunboats on the News River. A key gap in the Confederate line was that railroad that went through the position. Reno would send his men in an attempt to breach Branch there. Militias defending the soft part in the defense would be driven away. Once done, Reno would then redeploy in the swampy ground, putting pressure on the Confederate left. Park would move up along the railroad, coming in from his reserve role. His men break into the center, beginning a retreat for the rebels. On the right flank, the 26th and 33rd North Carolina almost does not retreat, not getting the word to fall back. Union gunboats force their way through obstacles to get to New Bern. Confederates would then set fire to the city, much as they had done at Elizabeth City earlier in the year. Branch would retreat further inland to the safety of his interior lines. During the battle for New Bern, the Confederates lost 68 killed and over 100 wounded, with an additional 400 captured. The Union would lose 90 killed, 385 wounded. New Bern would be held by the Federals for the rest of the war. Let's go ahead and pause there. We fought the Battle of Hampton Roads today. We have a good amount of buildup to the showdown between the Monitor and the Merrimack, or the CSS Virginia. Soon, unfortunately, we are going to have to say goodbye to both vessels. I just want to take a little bit of time here at the end of the episode because I want to plug the Mariners Museum in Newport News, Virginia, uh, because they have a great exhibit on the Battle of Hampton Roads, and I think it's worth mentioning, even if, you know, obviously I'm not really getting anything out of it, right? Uh, but it is such a well-done exhibit. There's a lot of interactive parts to it. Um, they also have, of course, the Dahlgren guns from the monitor, uh, which will be a story for another time. And they even have a life-size replica of the monitor, so you get a good idea of how big the vessel was. And obviously, they don't have one for the Virginia, but you can imagine if, if that is as big as it is, then the Virginia must have really been this massive ship uh, comparatively. So I just want to plug that real quick, that if you're ever in the Newport News area, it's a, it's a great museum, a great exhibit. Next week, we're going to head out to the Shenandoah Valley and fight another battle with Stonewall Jackson, 
as well as continue the campaign in North Carolina. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.